I'll be reading today from Jeremiah 1, verses 4 through 10. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, oh, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I'm only a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say, I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth, See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overflow, to build and to plant. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you uh, participating in the year of the Bible? It's quite an enriching experience in it. There's great advantages to it. One is you, you see the entire scope of the Bible's message. And another is along the way you see all every lesson, every story. And then there is that verse that you've often used and lo and behold you find it in this context. Maybe it doesn't even mean what we thought it meant once you saw it in its context. That can happen. For example, a few, years, a few weeks ago we read from Isaiah, and in the 14th chapter, there's a verse that many say is talking about the origin of the devil and that his name is Lucifer. Isaiah 14, 12, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? But then when you read the context... It's talking about the king of Babylon, and it's a taunt against the king of Babylon. With a taunt, you don't take everything super literally. What is a theological definition of a taunt? It's this. That's a taunt, and that's what's taking place against the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14. I don't think it's talking about the origin of Satan at all. You say, well, then how did he? Or, or, or I'll find out and I'll let you know. <laughs> it's not so important to find out where he came from as to know where he's going and what he's doing now. Once when reading through the Bible, I read a verse in Jeremiah the 29 that changed the face of my ministry. This came across it. Talking to the exiles in Babylon, God says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord in its behalf. God's word of the exiles. And you know, we as Christians are exiles in the world today. And the same message can speak to us. What are we to do while we're here? Withdraw from everything? No, that's not what God said. Seek the well-being, the welfare, the shalom of the community where God has placed you and pray to the Lord in this behalf. And I want you to tell you that reshaped my ministry and reshaped the focus of our church when I came across that verse. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. His melancholy temperament certainly fit many of his messages. It also stoked 
what we'll call his misery, his discouragement. God raises up the right men and the right women to speak the word and do the tasks that need to be done right now in the church and in the world. Where do you fit in? So we're going to look, I invite you to turn to uh, Jeremiah 1 and also to the outline that you have in the bulletin as we're going to look at Jeremiah. He was loyal to God and he was loving to the people. His words were powerful then and they're powerful now and I hope we'll let him speak to us. Jeremiah the man, chapter 1. First, his circumstances. It was a difficult time in Israel's history. Verse 1 the word of the Lord came to, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. It was a time of international crisis that threatened this little land of Judah. To the north were the powerful kingdoms of Assyria and Babylon, and to the south, the kingdom of Egypt, and Israel was in peril during that time. Internally, it was a time of leadership turnover. Five kings, I checked, five kings in the space of 22 years. Only one was a godly king, Josiah, and sadly, he picked a fight with a pharaoh, and he lost it, and he died, and his rule was cut short. And the four kings after him were not godly people. They did not care for the word of the Lord. When Mary and I read through Proverbs, we came across a verse in Proverbs 28 and verse 2 that speaks to this. When a land transgresses, it has many rulers. But with a man of understanding and knowledge, its stability will long continue. Think of the land of Judah under the kingship of Hezekiah compared to that of these four bad rulers. It's true of a nation then, true of a nation today. Jeremiah served as a prophet for about 43 years during this time of turmoil. Now his call. God said, Jeremiah, I need a volunteer, and it's you. <laughs> Verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So when did God call him? Before he was born. Jeremiah was chosen by God for a prophetic ministry even while he was in his mother's womb. And this possibility doesn't really need to amaze us all that much. Look at the message of Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14. You formed my inward parts... You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God starts working with us then, and then in time, he does more. In Luke 1.15, we learn that John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit before he was even born. Now, I doubt that any of us were filled with the Spirit before we were born. But we, as believers, were all known by God. We were already called by God. God calls us to salvation and God calls us to service. Sometimes God called people directly, but we can't count on that or expect it. In the book of Acts, there are a few times where God called people directly, but by and large, most disciples of the Lord simply grow in faith and come to know their calling in a variety of ways. Perhaps someone in the church will 
see some possible ministry skills in your life and invite you to serve. Perhaps you will take an invitation to volunteer for something and you'll say, that is really my niche. Perhaps you have special talents or passions or desires and you can develop those talents and nurture those passions and follow those desires. I encourage you to test different ministries in the church to help you discern your heart and your gifts and your passions. When I was three, I realized I liked church music. We were in the Lutheran church at the time. They did the same liturgy every week, and it was great for a three-year-old because you just soak it all up. You, you just, and it's, it's still with me. There's an awful lot of things I learned later that I long lost, but what you learn at three might stay with you. And I would come home from church, and I'd go to the windowsill, and I would play church. I'm the pastor, I'm the worship leader, and the windowsill is a pulpit. And then I got into my teenage years, and I could care less about going to church, and I didn't go to the windowsill and play church any longer. But then Jesus came into my life in a very powerful way, just before my 16th birthday, and I knew right away that I wanted to do three things. I wanted to go to church, I wanted to learn the Bible, and I wanted to serve. Go to church and learn the Bible and serve. For me, that service was music. And so I led my first worship service when I was 17, and I gave my first sermon when I was 18. Dreadful sermon. <laughs> Can I ever say that I really felt the call of God in my life or heard the voice? No. But I developed my talents, and I followed my passions, and I nurtured the spiritual gifts I believed I had and went where I went. Interesting thing, in 1983, an opportunity came my way to become the pastor of this church. Problem was, I already had a good job. I was teaching theology at, the Bible, at Biola, so I had a, a choice between two good jobs. Which will I take? Someone came to me and said, Don, have you thought about asking God what his will is for you? I thought, oh, no, I never gave a thought to that. No, no, but what I did say surprised this person a bit, and I would say it today. I don't think God cared whether I taught it by all or whether I pastored it to church. What? I kind of have a weird view of the will of God. It's a correct view, but it's kind of weird. <laughs> so God called Jeremiah, and Jeremiah has a complaint, number three. Jeremiah answered, me, I don't know how to speak. I'm only a child. Verse 6, I said, ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak. I'm only a youth. Better hear that again. I don't know what to speak. I'm only a youth. You say, how many youth do you meet who don't know what to speak, how to speak? <laughs> but the Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a youth. For to all whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Paul gave some words of advice to young Timothy. 1 Timothy 4.12 through Paul. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example. See, in speech, life, love, faith, purity. If the young minister will set that kind of example, people are not going to look down on him. Now, if he doesn't, he's going to have a problem. I took my first pastorate. I was 25 years old in Long Beach, and some people that 
didn't really want me to do that. They would refer to me as that kid. Oh, that's tr- that kid. He's at. <laughs> um, I was having breakfast at Bob's Big Boy, and somebody, a member of the church, wanted to reach me, so called the restaurant, and uh, I saw a waitress come down the row of booths. Uh, Are you a reverend? Are you a reverend? Are you a reverend? She came to my booth. She walked on. Are you a reverend? And so I said, what you ask these people that you didn't ask me? She said, well, we have a phone call for a minister. So we're looking. I said, that phone call's for me. Don't let anybody look down on your youth. Now, I will say, if you have a problem with people looking down on your youth, it, it has a way of correcting itself in time. <laughs> Now the verse needs to say, don't let anybody look down on you in your old age. (laughs) As a teen, the thought of ministry in a church, oh, that scared me to death. I was, uh, our, our, our church put on a youth service one Sunday a month, and the leader said to me once, Don, would you do special music? Why don't you play your violin? I played an orchestra for six years, but... 20 other people were able to conceal me. And I, you don't want me to play my violin. Squeak, squawk, squeak, squawk. I said, but we'll play the piano. Okay, do a piano solo. I was sick, sick for a whole week. I won't tell you what the sickness was. It got better, second piano solo, only sick for half a week. During that time, I took a liking to 2 Timothy, and I found a verse in 2 Timothy that really meant a lot. 2 Timothy 1.7 out of the King James Version. God hath not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Oh, I needed to hear that. So I would say to all the teens and all the uh, young adults, might be in the service, be more 11. We have any in this service? Stuart? Paul, teen, young adult, you should all be saying this. I got turned the page. I will love the church. I will learn the Bible. I will serve. Say it with me. I will love the church. I will learn the Bible. I will serve. Do that like Jeremiah did. Now we're going to look at the message. First of all, the people were like an unfaithful bride. That was her first big mistake. She had two sins, according to chapter 2 and verse 13. Verse 12 says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. Here's the first one. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Isaiah 55, which you recently read, says, opens this way. Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now in the New Testament, who gives the living waters? Jesus. John 4, 14. Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Now, don't miss the point there. He's not saying just one sip and that's all you need. He's saying there will be the constant flood of living water from which you can drink. 
Their first sin was forsaking the source of living water. Here's their second sin, continuing in verse 13. They hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, if you come from where I come from, you've got to know the difference between a well and a cistern. A well gets water out of the ground. A cistern captures rainwater. My grandparents built a house in the 1920s, and they had a cistern that would capture the rainwater. And my grandmother had a third faucet right in the middle that could turn it on and pump in water from the cistern, soft water. But the years went by, and the city water came in, and the cistern went dry. By the time I was a child, it was city water, no cistern. My grandpa would say, be careful how much water you use. we got to pay for every drop. <laughs> what value is a dry cistern? None at all. Continuing in Isaiah 55, verse 2, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? What cisterns did Israel seek out? Well, she sought the cistern of the influences from Assyria and Egypt. And she sought the cistern of the Canaanite fertility god Baal. And they're dry. We say nature abhors a vacuum, but so does the human heart. Put God out of your heart and something else will come in. Reject the living water and you'll be trying to drink from a cistern. No matter what pleasures that system, cistern may give you for a while, it is still a cistern without water. What are some of the cisterns that we might go through? Well, the, the success to be on top, the, the, the thrust of our lives to be on top of things. Uh, social media that continues uh, to consume so much of our time and causes us to fail to develop meaningful communications. Striving after money and the things that it can provide. Here's a big one in America. Do, your, do it yourself spirituality. That's a dry cistern. Getting involved in a cause that becomes like a religion to you. What are we doing? Are you drinking from the well where the living water comes? Or are you going to a dry cistern? I hope you're drinking from the well. I hope you put your faith in Jesus and you're drinking the water of life that he supplies. A second great failure of the people, the people couldn't produce a single faithful man. Chapter 5, verse 1. Run to and fro throughout the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search your squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks pardon, seeks truth that I may pardon her. They couldn't find any. In chapter 5, we learned that the average folk, well, they were not faithful. Verse 4. Then I said, these are only the poor. They have no sense. They do not know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. And he describes one of their failings, uh, sexual sin, in verse 8. This is quite a verse. They were well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing after their neighbor's wife. <laughs> Say, well, a lot of men haven't changed. <laughs> that a good verse? <laughs> so Jeremiah said, well, okay, can't find any godliness with the average people. 
I'm going to go to the leaders. Surely find something godly there. Surely there's a lot of godliness in Washington, D.C. I will go to the great and will speak to them, for they know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God, but they all alike had broken the yoke, they had burst the bonds. And the people all together, poor and leaders alike, they say God doesn't care what we do. Verse 11, the house of Israel and the house of Judah have been utterly treacherous to me, declares the Lord. They have spoken falsely of the Lord and have said, he will do nothing. No disaster will come on us, nor will we see sword or famine. And then this is really sad. The prophets and the priests are failures. Verse 30, an appalling and terrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction, and my people love to have it so. What did the Apostle Paul say to Timothy? In the last days, people are going to have itching ears, and they're going to surround themselves with teachers that say the same thing they want. Whether prophets or preachers, they're going to fail to give the word of the Lord. And so God's going to bring judgment, verse 15. I am bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. They shall eat up your harvest and your food. They shall eat up your sons and your daughters. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees. Your fortified cities to which, in, to which you trust, they will beat down with a sword. But even in these days, here's a message of hope, I will not make a full end of you. But God is going to bring judgment. It will surely come. Now, the third failure of the people, and this comes from chapter 7, the people put their trust in the presence of the temple. Jeremiah would go stand at the entrance to the temple, and people would go in and out and do their religious things, and he would give a message to them that they didn't want to hear. Verse 3, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the war Lord. They might as well be saying, I'm secure, I'm secure, I'm secure. I went to youth camp and around the bonfire, I sat as a teenager, and there I said I believed in Jesus, and now I'm in my 30s, no, I'm not... I won't go to church, I don't live for God, but I'm secure, I'm secure, I'm secure. The temple was there not to give a false sense of security. It was there as a place where people could engage in true worship and to serve the Lord as expressions of the love for Him that they had in their hearts. Mary and I like to watch July 4th celebrations on TV in the mall in the Capitol and there you have the majestic monument, the Lincoln Memorial, and the Capitol, and the White House, and the Jefferson Memorial, and the Washington Monument in the middle. And you know that both in the Lincoln Memorial and in the Jefferson Memorial, there are important statements to be said about God and His justice. But if we just simply say, we have the monuments, we have the monuments, we have the monuments, and we depart from the heritage that's not good enough. And you can put the words in God we trust behind the speaker of the house, but it won't mean anything unless we live out what it means to say in God we trust. 
Crystal Cathedral was dedicated a few days ago. I should say the Christ's Cathedral, where the Crystal Cathedral once was. And it's a magnificent building. I'm looking forward to visiting it. But even such magnificence in and of itself is not going to create God. It's only going to come as people see that as an aid to come and worship God with hearts that are right with him or as a place where your heart can become right with God. Otherwise, you're just saying the cathedral, the cathedral, the cathedral, as if that proves God is present with us in blessing us. So, they have these three great failures. What do they need to do? They need to repent. And that's what verses 5 to 7 in chapter 7 give us. If you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly exercise justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, if you do not oppress the immigrant, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, is innocent blood being shed in America? If you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. You need to repent. Away with superficial religion. Now I want you to see third, Jeremiah the, the misery. In chapter 20, he goes into great travail of heart. It's not the only time that he laments. Uh, chapters 8 and 9, the whole book of lamentation is one big lament. What's the definition of lament? It's an emotional cry to God in the hope that he will relieve the suffering of the lamenter and change the situation caused by the suffering. And the last straw in chapter 20 is when the priest of God beat Jeremiah and put him in stocks. And Jeremiah prophesied a curse on him, but he was also really down, really down. Can you think of other great prophets who had their discouragement? Who went and sat under a juniper tree after having a great success in ministry? Elijah. Which prophet was mad at God because God gave him converts and he didn't want any converts? Jonah. Jonah. What Bible hero gave this lament? Behold the ungodly, they prosper in the world, they increase in riches. Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain, for all day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. Who said that? David, Psalm 73. What evangelist had the humiliation of being let down from a window from the city wall in a basket to escape persecution? The Apostle Paul. I wonder how that looked on his resume. <laughs> you know, we glamorize the mega churches and we glamorize the televangelists and we say, there, there is the standard of success. But the real test comes when we're down in the trenches and we are hurting and when our ministries seem to fail and we lament to God and we pour out our hearts in those kind of tough situations. I attended a conference for pastors and the Luncheon speaker was a megachurch, we'll call him Reverend Superfaith. 
And I said, you know who we really need to hear at the luncheon? We need to hear from the pastor of a church of 75 people who has been down in the trenches for 25 years and has stuck with it through thick and thin and has had many, many occasions to lament and be down and what he has learned from that. And I think the guy was right when he said to me, well, nobody would buy luncheon tickets to listen to something like that, but they wouldn't want to hear Jeremiah either, would they? What happened here? Well, he was laughed at in verse 7. Become a laughing stock all day long. Everyone mocks me. He got so discouraged he was determined not to speak God's word anymore. He said, if I say I will not mention him or speak anymore in his name, well, guess what? He couldn't hold back. Then in my heart, as it were, there was a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. That's the nature of God's word, you know. It's, it's powerful. It's a burning fire. Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I propose, which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. God's word is powerful. It will accomplish. No matter how down the prophet is, the word of God that he shares is powerful. Now, another thing he did was to uh, call out to God for vengeance against his foes, the people that were creating all this thing for him. And, and if, if there are those who are, have put you on shipwreck because of your witness, um, you turn to God and you ask God to take care of things. You don't try to take care of things yourself. But you ask God for vengeance. Talk to him about it. And that's what Jeremiah does in verse 13. Verse 12. O Lord of hosts, who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you have I committed my cause. And another thing Jeremiah did in responding to all these setbacks around him, he sings and trusts for deliverance. Here is a cure for the despondent heart. Go to church and sing your heart out. Because it is in singing together that the Spirit of God comes in. He anoints the faithful and lifts us up. Verse 13, sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of the evildoers. We come to church and we sing and we're lifted from our lamentation. Fear not, I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand upheld by my gracious, omnipotent hand. You sing those words and you'll be lifted from lamentation. But there's one more thing Jeremiah did. He was so down that he cursed the day of his birth, just like Job did. Verse 14, cursed be the day in which I was born, the day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. And the man who took the message to my father, a son is born to you, I wish he had killed me in my mother's womb. I wish I'd have been aborted and never seen the light of day. Cursing the day of his birth. That's being down. Jesus said, 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and offer all kinds of evil and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets. Can you name one of them? Jeremiah, who were before you. We're not experiencing anything new. I often think there are three great things that need to happen to the church regularly. Renewal, reformation, and revival. And part of revival is repentance. And getting right with God through forgiveness. And so we're going to close this message by recite, giving a recitation responsibly. It comes from Jeremiah chapter 3, God's call for repentance. Please read. Return, faithful Israel. Declares the Lord. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you rebelled against the Lord your God, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. Amen.